Welcome to The Deep End by On Deck, a podcast for visionary builders, creators, and thinkers to discuss world-changing stories and ideas. I'm your host, Marshall Kozlov. Let's dive in. I think of community as actually having three things. One are what I call rituals. I'll name them and then I'll explain them in detail. Like one of them is called rituals. The other one is a badge. um, And the other one is co-creation. So those are the three that I think constitute actual community. Because without the three of them, I think what you have is network, which may be semantic, but I think is different. DeepEd invites the founders, operators, and investors from the OnDeck community and beyond to turn their experiences into the ideas others need to start their own odysseys. Joining me this week in the Deep End is Min Kim. Min is a partner at ODX, the community-backed accelerator and fund that Eric and David previewed on the show back in October. ODX's first cohort kicked off last month, and we were excited to bring someone from the team on, though much of the episode focuses on Min's eclectic interests at the intersection of future of work, fertility, community, and family. This is Min's second time on the show. She briefly joined our 2022 Tech Trends episode and underscored her excitement about spatial audio. We wanted to bring her back on because she's an A-plus player on On Deck's team, but also because we really appreciate her work towards a techno-optimistic future. Hope you enjoy listening to the episode as much as we enjoyed recording it. Here it is. Min Kim, welcome to The Deep End. Thanks for having me, Marshall. It's really good to see you. Good to see you again as well. Everyone, we are audio first as a podcast, but we have a YouTube channel where the video is posted. I want to shout out Min's really cool sweater jacket. So (laughs) if we want to start getting our listenership to check out YouTube, go check out Min's sweater jacket. Really cool. Huge fan. I'm just wearing a t-shirt, so I'm not really crushing it on the vibe side here, but we're going to progress nonetheless. So Min, we've already done a bit of introduction for you. You appeared on our 2022 Tech Trends episode. I'd love for you just to give a quick, or as long as you want to go, articulation of what your role is at On Deck, why you were attracted to working at ODX, and then just like a broad, like what's your story in the broader investment company building space? Sure. I'm happy to give a brief introduction. Um, so I've been an early stage investor for about five years now. Um, before I joined OnDeck, I worked at a firm called Bloomberg Beta um, with some amazing colleagues. And we were an early stage firm focused on the future of work, um, where I spent most of my time investing in workflow automation, machine learning applications, and robotics. And so I did that for about four plus years. Um, had the fortune of meeting David and Eric about three, actually now over three years ago. Um, at one of Ondex like first founder retreats, actually, and so um, got to learn more about their story and like the vision. And this was in some ways even before the company was fully formed. At the time, it was a series of community building dinner events, bringing together founders and operators and just other talented people. Uh, and so when Eric and David decided to make it into a company. Um, I was super excited and alongside many other, many other individuals, I think at the time, um, had the chance to invest and so have gotten to work with the team for a long time. And so about, I guess, five months ago when we decided to launch ODX, because 
Um, I mean, a lot of listeners probably who are familiar with OnDeck's story is for a community of founders and builders and operators um, and experts across a variety of domains. And there's so many people who are coming out of the community who are starting companies. And so in some ways, like my thesis behind OnDeck was a natural evolution should be to invest in, some, in many of these people. Right. And be able to um, not be the, not just be the place where they start their companies, but be able to grow with them over the course of their entire company trajectory. Um, so that was like the impetus um, for my my move to OnDeck. And um, so I'm a partner at ODX, um, our community backed accelerator. It is a hundred million dollar fund. Um uh, backed by the community. And so in some ways, it is a great place for individuals who want to navigate the idea maze, find their co-founder, find their first customers, find their first investors, um, so on and so forth. Cool. We've got the uh, infomercial out of the way. Obviously, <laughs> ODX is great. Joking there. But this is actually good because the reason why I really wanted to speak with you is, A, ODX is great. Your work is really interesting. But you are a person who has been engaged in very interesting spaces that listeners, founders, community members, et cetera, would want to look at. I want to start here. I'm sure you've seen this joke on Twitter that now that everyone's pivoted to Web3 in the metaverse four years ago, they were focused on machine learning. That was like the hot thing. So in terms of your time at Bloomberg Beta, I would love for you to just articulate what your thesis around workflow automation, machine learning, those spaces were, and how that category evolved over your time at Bloomberg Beta, and how you're thinking about it now that you're a partner at ODX. Sure. Um, I mean, future of work in some ways, um, when I started, it was 2017. And then, and at the time it was like still fairly like niche and novel. Um, and then over the course of, you know, like the four, four years, uh, it became so ubiquitous to mean like almost everything under the sun. Um, but the core, core thesis behind the future of work is that, um, it was focused largely on like knowledge work, right? And so what are, if you believe that more individuals will work like developers in some way, um, like software engineers, um, what would that look like, right? And that that is a world where a lot of the work is coming online. And so there are lots of new software services that can be enabled, not just in like, quote unquote, traditional tech industries, right? But also across a variety of other um old school industries like shipping, shipping and logistics, in manufacturing, um, in insurance, like historically places where a lot of the work was pen and paper driven, right? And so that was the impetus behind, you know, investments like Flexport, um, uh, shipping and logistics by Forwarder, um, investments in Newfront, um, which was originally called Abe, and that would that is today like a modern insurance brokerage, and those are all pen and paper driven workflows historically, right? Or literally somebody to calling somebody on the phone. Um, and Roy Baha, one of my former partners at Rubeda, um, has this notion of a hot spot startup, and so it is one in which you are not necessarily expecting behavior change from the in, from the users of your product, but in some ways you are facilitating or enabling the work that they. They're doing just with technology in the back end, right? Um, and so that's very much like um, an insurance broker who is managing like their uh, list of customers um, and historically used to just do that on the phone. Um, is there a way you can do that faster um, and more efficiently, more transparently with like data collated in one compiled into one place um, and actually make their throughput higher, right? So they can actually make more money. 
And so that was like the origin of a lot of our thinking around what we considered the future of work. It wasn't just about investing in uh, traditional like software services, like focused specifically on high growth startups and tech companies. We did also do those kinds of investments, but our scope of future of work was broader in that way. I'm interested in the wording you used, working much more like a coder, essentially. What, what, is that, what does that mean? And does that mean that, is that how we work now? So for example, I started my career in DC. I literally rode the Metro to work. Mm-hmm. I wore business casual. I clocked out at yeah. 530. I really see that as being this very, I, I do not identify any part of that as being code or right comp sci adjacent at all. So yeah. is that the world that we've moved to now? I'm recording this at home. My hours are much more flexible. People are more remote. Like how did that actually play out? Yeah, it's actually less about working life culture and more in the day to day of like, what are the tools and services that you use today to actually get your job done? Right? I don't know, you you might remember when most of the work might have been just on a series of like Microsoft Office applications, right? Um, which is great, but a lot of that material is static. Uh, and so when you tra- when you exchange hands on information, or like literally, and still people do this today, right? There's like V1, V1.2, V1.5, and then so on and so forth, instead of having something that is like even just a simple feature change around track changes, right? And could that information also, instead of being static, be... Um, real time and live such that, um, and you see this in applications like Notion where you, or, uh, where you can like sync blocks of information like text, where if somebody, if it lives in multiple places, um, one person changing it actually influences the other places where it lives. Um, and that's probably more what I mean in that the tools and the processes that we use, um, in our working life, uh, look a lot more of like, you know, developer tools. And this is where, I think the low code, no code renaissance happened, you know, a couple of years ago where all of a sudden you had individuals who weren't necessarily building like end to end software applications, but could find like tiny, I don't know, I used to call them tiny automations. Um, And we would look for ways on our team where, great, if you happen to be doing the same thing more than five times or something, right? Is there a way which you can uh, use like a combination of like Integromat and Zapier and your inbox and a trigger in a Slack message um, to be able to like stitch those together and create a, I don't know, streamlined hiring platform, right? And there's a variety of tools that now are, um, I think, much more standardized today in that way. And so, you know, people manage their recruiting pipelines, their sales, sales outreach, their marketing campaigns, like all through um, a variety of these like low code, quote unquote, tools for like the citizen developer. I don't love that term, but you know, that's the notion. <laughs> that's funny. No, I love the example you gave of version one, version two, version three, because I was just triggered back to high school with <laughs> Microsoft Word. Cause, cause this is actually the point. It's the, the collaborative nature. I totally get what you're talking about there. Yeah. Okay. So this is interesting. So now that you're in your ODX on deck phase, we talked about the no-code themes. We talked about the workflow automation teams, the collaboration we just referenced. What are, what are some interesting themes, ideas, companies you're working with who are taking the implications of what you're describing, which could have been seen in 2017, 2018, and are moving them forward? I'm happy to talk about specific top areas, um, but also more broadly, I think one of the things that makes ODX in some ways really unique is that it is like global by default, 
um, remote in nature. And that actually gave us a ton of visibility um, and access to founders that I think like I historically would have never really considered or been able to invest in. Right. And so knowing that the first cohort is 130 companies um, and half of them are outside of the U.S. is really exciting to me, right? Because there are all these opportunities that are new markets around financial infrastructure in Africa or um, telehealth in India uh, or even like enterprise software that you would see that you'd so- see like messaging software um, that you would see in the US in Western Europe, right? Where like some of the behavior and the customer segments are slightly different. And so there are new opportunities there. And so that's been really cool to just see like the global nature of ODX companies and founders and then the and then that they are finding each other um, and being able to support like that zero to one phase um, in their growth. This is a quick thing. I, I actually want to take a quick tangent point here because mm-hmm. you what you're just describing about the global nature of investing brings to mind an episode it's we've already recorded this but it's going to come out in March and the founder um, is ODS like on deck scale um, participant and he is in Austria and he was describing Austrian venture capital firms and how he's just saying and he's saying that look now we're looking at US funding in a way that we wouldn't have before and I was thinking and I asked him how do you compete? in a global space, if you are one of those more localized firms, or if you are an African-based venture fund, or you are an Austrian fund, or you're a German fund, just putting your, let's say devil's advocate uh, perspective on here, how, how do you think the competition looks like from there? Because his perspective was, in this environment, the local firms have to get in is just absolutely early, 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 early. That's what their main competitive advantage is going to be. I'm going to. Th- I'm curious how you think about that. Yeah, um, I mean, I think there are some really great. I mean, a, a handful of the companies in the cohort already have angel investors that were local, right? And I think that's really great for proving out like a certain business model, and for better or for worse, like in markets like you know Lagos or in like southern India or something like that. Um, a lot of the companies do have more traction, frankly, like they already have a V1, they already have some early customers, some of them might be generating like some nominal revenue, right? Um, And all of that was uh, funded through either friends and family or like local angels. Uh, Some of them are bootstrapped, obviously, but I think that is like the benefit to having like local expertise on the ground and local, what we call like belief capital. Thing about on deck and how we compete, I think with ODX is that in two ways. One is I think in some ways we can be an on-ramp, right, to the founder and investor community in the US. And in some ways, like it doesn't even have to be specific to the US, but more broadly, like, you know, part of the part of the historical tagline for OnDeck was like Silicon Valley in the cloud, right? So what it what, what happens when talent and um talent opportunity and investment capital are distributed not just uh, not just not just in the valley or in like traditional startup ecosystems, but all over the, all over the world. Uh, and so we compete on that value proposition that we can be an on-ramp to talent capital outside of like their local region. Right. And then for some of these other companies, I think getting exposure to just the know-how and the tradecraft of how it's, how, you know, the nature of startup building happens um, in traditional technology hubs like Silicon Valley, I think is really helpful because there's a lot of, know-how and just like trade secrets almost um, around like 
yeah, how did you bootstrap your marketplace in the real estate sector and like acquire agents? Um, how did you start to, uh, how did you like even just set up a sales motion for um, going after high growth startups so that you can um, flood the market and, you know, grow with them? Um, and just like trade secrets like that, that I think historically was more accessible to founders in the US than it is today. So I want to talk about we've covered the future of workspace. Let's go into the future of families slash community space. But uh-huh. I'll start with a question around the word community. We recorded a really great episode today with uh, Mark Yuskos, and he mm-hmm. we were getting in this debate of is community a, a brand? Does a community have value? If we're talking about buzzwords, community right now seems to just be the buzzword. Well, there's 15 buzzwords here, but it's one of the top tier buzzwords. Let's put it that way. What actually makes, and this is more of just broader than on deck. What, what, how do you as an investor, if you're looking at a pitch deck, differentiate between an obvious, we get it community and like, wow, like this is actually a community. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I love this question. Um, and we're transitioning, I guess, into some of my more recent like areas and theses that I've been percolating on. Um, one of them is community, right? Like my investment in on deck was very much based on, um, a notion around that. And I think of community as actually having three things. One are what I call rituals. I'll name them and then I'll explain them in detail. Like one of them is called rituals. The other one is a badge. Um, and the other one is co-creation. So those are the three that I think constitute actual community because without the three of them, I think what you have is network, which may be semantic, but I think is different, right? And so let me kind of explain each one of them. And so rituals, I think are what, it's the tie that binds, right? So when you think about institutions like churches um, or big educational institutions, like one of the reasons that there's so high affiliation is because there's this ritual of like returning to some event, um, something that uh, is an experience, like a shared experience that you all know that you had, right? Or have. Um, and so I think like the, uh, the idea of like a ritual is kind of important in that way. The badge is probably the most straightforward. It's like the, it's, it's the affiliation that you get to carry. Right. And the reason I say the ritual is important as is the co-creation is because there are lots of networks that are based on badges. Right. Um, great. You get to go to Davos. That's cool. Um, but that's not a community, not in, not in my eyes. Right. Um, because it lacks the other two. And then the co-creation part, I think, is actually one of the more underappreciated elements, um, which is to say that communities work when the individual participants have agency and willingness to to create new things for the better fit, betterment of um, everybody in the community, right? And I'm I'm going to butcher this, but there's this like quote that I think is attributed to Bill Gates um, when he was talking about like how Microsoft is a platform. I think it's Microsoft, or it was basically the difference between um, a platform and a product, right? And a platform is where the majority of its profits are shared by the co-creators versus a product, which majority of the profits are go back to the primary company, right? And that in some ways is like the analogy that I, the analogous um, thing that I think about when I think about community. Um, And so uh, community to me is you need, you need the co-creation, you need the badge and the affiliation uh, and the ritual. I'm going to raise the buzzword stakes here and say, (laughs) 
what are your thoughts then on the Web3 space then? Because obviously a lot of what you're describing, badges, co-creation, all of those aspects are going to play into that. So how do, how do you generally think about the space as, once again, yeah. as an investor, slash, but a person who's also interested in the ideas side of things? Yeah. And I will, you know, make my caveat that it is not like a huge area of my focus, but um, it's hard to, it's hard to avoid. <laughs> and so, I mean, within <laughs> Web3, I think, um, I mean, there are some really exciting projects. I think the thing that I often feel is missing are the rituals, right? And some communities are better at this than others, but a lot of like NFT drops are like one time or they all build up to this like one big moment and then, and then what, right? And, and sometimes that's structural, right? Like certain DAOs are formed with a particular goal in mind. Um, and then once that goal is achieved, then, you know, it's like, a, okay, like we either disband or there's like an off off-board kind of opportunity, right? And they're not necessarily intended to be like everlasting, right? Uh, and so I think like that's my biggest TLDR in terms of the Web3 space where communities are really powerful in terms of generating like a coalition uh, up to a certain like goal. And then, but what it misses, I think, is occasionally like that sense of ritual. Yeah. And then obviously something that in a non-startup context that comprises a community is obviously families. And this is something that just in terms of lurking on the <laughs> Twitter zeitgeist uh, beat, I just noticed a lot more discussion. We love to see your, your broad thoughts around like future of family, like what's driving the interest. I mean, obviously we're all interested in family in a couple of different levels, but just yeah. why within a context of this type of conversation does that come to mind? Yeah, it's, um, it's the, it's the intersection of the future of work and community actually. And so I'll give an, I'll offer like another mental model or mental framework that I've been, that I think I've been working on for like the better part of a year now. And, you know, historically pre COVID people moved for like three reasons, right? They moved for their college, you know, if, um, or other education, they moved like literally geographically, like moving from one place to another, they moved for college, they moved for their career or they moved for their couple. I needed the three C's. And so, you know, for your partner, uh, and now you have this opportunity where in a world where remote work is or hybrid work or whatever is the version, um, that's more uh, available, and companies are willing to do that. And there's like a consumer behavior change in that. Um, will people move for community? Right. And so that's like some ways where the family's uh, topic came up for me, which is, oh yeah, like before people just stayed where they were, wherever their job was, and then kind of oriented their entire life around that, that particular area. But I don't know, you saw like the Airbnb founder, uh, Brian Chesky say that like, he's basically going to spend every month of the new year in a different place and stay in different Airbnbs. Um, and that's not just him. That's like, I think a lagging indicator for a behavior that like quote unquote nomad life that lots of people have been doing. And historically, I think that was accessible for those who were younger, right? Earlier career um, without kids. But you couple that with more and more women having access to fertility care um, and being able to freeze their eggs and having more agency in like in terms of family planning. Um, and I think like there's some long-term ramifications on like what is like families, what do families look like five to 10 years from now, right? Some of this was also born from just like a personal observation where many of my female friends had their eggs frozen. And for the, especially those who were un, unmarried or unpartnered, right? And like COVID put this like two-year 
hold in some ways of like planning their future, right? And then on top of that, what's cool is I remember when it was like a really big deal when like Google, Facebook, and also based all the all the like the Fang companies started offering like fertility care as part of their employee benefits, right? Egg freezing, IVF, um, and now you actually have so many more companies outside of the tech industry offering that. Um, and they're like startups, like literally, uh, there's a company called Carrot and more consumer facing companies like Kindbody uh, that are like doing like doing very well um, and a couple years old now. And uh, it's just like more accessible in a way that it wasn't before. So, you know, you take all of those and in my mind, like that leads to, oh, okay, like the modern family both in terms of when you choose to do it, how you choose to do it, and where it's possibly going to look very different five to 10 years from now. Man, there's so many interesting things to pick up there, but let's just start with this. How big do you think that, that what's the total addressable market of folks who are directionally <laughs> looking for what Brian Chesky is doing on a longer term basis. So obviously during the past two years, there's been this yeah. very big space. It's one thing to do that. A lot of folks um, have lived the nomad lifestyle. Long term, do you think do you think things start shifting more towards that direction? Here's what I think won't change. I think, and then I'll, ch- I'll share you what I don't know um, or what's TBD. What I don't think will change is that we have an unprecedented number of generations represented in the workforce, right? And I think there is a fundamental shift in how they think about mobility in terms of both career, like where and how long. Um, and this, the, you know, like, again, this goes back to like future of work in general around like, yeah, nobody, like very few people are doing five to 10 year career planning. It's, um, they're, they're picking up a portfolio of activities and deciding like, what is the experience and what is the opportunity that I want to have for the next two years, right? Um, hopefully at, at companies that I uh, feel mission aligned with in some way um, and I feel fairly compensated for. Um, and it becomes like a collection of portfolio uh diversification, right? Um, and I think more people are thinking about their careers in that way, especially in part because like the nature of the work in many industries is changing so changing quite quickly. Right. Um, so I don't think that will change. And so to your TAM question, I think the appetite is probably like here to stay, right? The thing I don't know is when and for how long, and just more broadly, I think like depending on like macro market conditions on um, how, I don't necessarily see it as like risk-taking behavior um, to move around for like different jobs or different careers or uh, different, like to experience different cities per se, but um I don't know. It could go one of two ways, right? Uh, if it becomes super expensive to live in the U.S., even if you're moving from you know somewhere like New York or San Francisco to a lower cost of living region, even then it might be like you know more than you might be willing to do. And so, yeah, lots of people go to Mexico City, you know, where the cost of living is a lot cheaper, um, even with a right size like comp based on like where you live, it's still your dollar might just go farther. Right. And so I think like that's like a macro condition that I'm not sure how it will play out, but that I think it will be a contributing factor. Something I'm curious about, you're based in San Francisco, correct? I am. So it seems like whether or not there's this multi-million 
person figure of people living the Brian Chesky lifestyle, it's very clear that states, localities, cities recognize there's an opportunity to really pick up people, residents, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right now. What do you really see as opportunities and differentiating factors? Because I think what's cool about Miami from a tech, and I'm not a Miami person, so this is- Where are you? Very, <laughs> I mean, I'm in New York, and I'm so I'm just not, I'm just not a, I, would, I wouldn't move to Miami long-term, but what I think Miami has done to your community point is within the tech industry specifically, they have merged this, you want to move to this place because it's going to be slash is a tech hub, but also there's a community that you want to live in that fits mm -hmm. for all these different reasons. So I'm curious how you just think about how cities, ecosystems are, are are really displaying these different types of factors. I am very positive some. And I think if Miami is a new net new hotbed for technology startups and founders, I think that's great. That's awesome. Right. Um, I, the thing that I attribute to all of these cities is that like each city has its own culture and its own flavor of tech. Right. And so um, I think Silicon Valley historically has been, you know, like semiconductors and like hard tech and like solving um, really like research driven problems in the same way that like Boston um, historically and still today has a lot of like the academia um, embedded into its like history and the current ecosystem. And so I don't think that will change in part because those institutions are storied and attract amazing uh, pools of talent. Uh, and then to the other end, um, I mean, the first wave of like next gen Silicon Valley um, happened, what, like five years ago with like Austin or that was like the zeitgeist like three to five years ago where it was Austin. Um, it was uh, Seattle. Uh, I think briefly there were places like, you know, Detroit or Pittsburgh where there were, uh, where there's again, like really great schools, um, and lots of great talent. And that was like V1. What was missing from that in some ways was the, the community element of like, how do you bring together not just founders and not just entrepreneurial talent, but hiring talent and capital, um, as well as like the know-how and tradecraft, right? When I was at Bloomberg Beta, actually, we used to do these like tours to um, burgeoning like startup ecosystems. Uh, and that's where like Pittsburgh came to mind um, and like Cleveland, Ohio and all these places where, again, lots of storied education, academic institutions. Um, and then like the lesson learned where there was like, you need you need like a combination of things. You need the, the talent, um, both entrepreneurial and like new hire talent. You need local like government support, right? And that like they are embracing of like entrepreneurship. And then you also need like the know-how and the capital, right? And the like the combination of all of those things is what makes a city much more likely to succeed as a startup hub. And I think Miami in some ways like benefited tremendously, first of all, from COVID, right? Um, it's sunny there. It's nice. <laughs> and so if you live in New York during like the pandemic, um, yeah, Miami is like an hour and a half away. What is it? It's like a hop, skip flight. And all of a sudden you're in 80 degree sunshine, <laughs> which is pretty great. Um, and living by the beach. And um, so benefited from COVID in that way. And they were, the thing that Miami got right was like, it combined like the exuberance of talent um, or, or like entrepreneurial 
uh, appetite with capital. Like a lot of investors also move there. And then it also has like its own culture of like the kinds of startups um, and people that they attract. And so I think crypto became like a hotbed in Miami. More recently, I think like hard tech Miami was trending. And so there was a little bit of like, you know, like robotics, aerospace, like um, those kinds of industries where you can now build a little bit more cheaply than you used to be able to. And great, like they are welcome, right? In like Orlando and Florida um, more broadly. So yeah, I don't know. I um, I like Miami. I don't personally plan to live in Miami, <laughs> but, um, but I'm positive some about like net new entrepreneurship in different cities. You don't have to give a specific city to not pry into your personal life so <laughs> much on a podcast, but what are you, what are you looking for long-term like as an investor from a city, from a community? Oh gosh. I mean, this goes, uh, it's not a personal, I mean, it is a personal question, but it also is like more broadly, <laughs> like the whole like thesis around like, how do you build a new city? Right. Um, and I think, uh, you know, you look at companies like cul-de-sac, right. That are trying to build like a car free neighborhood. And so you can do that way, which is like, start from scratch effectively. You look at all of the companies that are trying to build like new homes in an autonomous way. And that's like, or, um, or even before that, like the, uh, all the ADU companies, the accessory dwelling units where great, if you could influence like the policy changes locally, um, could you build more housing and revitalize a community, um, and make it more ex- accessible, cheaper, frankly, right. To, um, either entrepreneurs or builders, or just people in general, right. What am I looking for at new cities? Uh, kind of probably goes back to, I I love working with founders. Um, that's why I've been doing this job for a long time and I plan to do it for a long time. And so my general stance is like, I'll go where founders are. <laughs> and hopefully it is decent weather because <laughs> uh, I do like to go on walks because um, it encourages think- uh, better like creative thinking. And I think anyone that is thinking about like, where should I go? I think this is this is actually a question on lots of like new grad spines because mm-hmm. it's a little bit like if you're graduating college like this year or graduated last year um, or will the next year, it's a little bit like, wow, I've potentially not met a lot of people and I'm just getting started, right? And so where do you go um, and how do you like build those relationships? Um, because for most people, uh, you like kind of go where your friends go or you have like your college community when you move out to the next city. Um, I think those ties are a little bit harder to find right now. And whoever is thinking about capturing, and maybe this is an idea for Undeck, <laughs> whoever is thinking about capturing um, like that group of call it, you know, anyone between 20 to 25 um, people who are like moving to a new city and trying to like, find their people. I think that is like an amazing opportunity to like capture talent. Yeah. So I'm glad you shifted to new grads because I want to close with this question. As a interested but outside person, before COVID, I feel like you could sum up a lot of the conventional wisdom around what to do as get to the Bay Area, learn to code, <laughs> try to work at a fang company. There are these very specific steps. Like you think of, you know, think of YC in the early days. Like you have to literally go um, mm-hmm. to the Bay Area for your interview in person. Yeah. To your point around young people just having their college life blown up. So the dynamic there's changed. It seems like everything I just stated, basically, <laughs> it's not that it doesn't apply 
It's that it isn't as generically followable as the path I just described there. So as things are still emerging, I'm not asking you to give a specific articulation of what the exact steps are to do, but what do you see as the emerging narratives that at least are good directional guides to young people, young founders, people who are bored at their current jobs? How would you sum those up? Oh my gosh. The people that I have met the last like 12 to 18 months um, who are either dropping out of college or just graduated are so impressive. And so to your point, like, I don't think the, the path that you laid out is not applicable. I think it's just that there are so many more options now, mm-hmm. which is awesome. Right. And so it's like, oh my gosh, did you like when starting, starting at like 18 or something, right. You can, you can start working part-time at some company doing some projects that you found on like some gig work platform because writing copy for like their marketing campaigns or something. Um, and then use that as your web, like doorway, doorway into doing customer support or something. And then, and those paths are like much more accessible today than they were before, before you like had to know somebody who like had to take a chance on you and you had to prove that you could do the job. And like, that's no longer necessarily true. Right. I mean, you look at just uh, I think like lots of people meet on discord servers. Now Twitter still continues to be like a hotbed for meeting like-minded people, especially like if you're interested in tech, right. Um, mm. where there is, uh, where there is kind of like a crowd that you can find. And I can cons- I continue to be consistently excited by the level of talent and the, and like just the sheer hustle, frankly, um, of like meeting people who, started writing up stub stacks just with their opinions about certain markets or breaking down a company and just starting to like create content because like when you're younger and you don't have like the relationship, sometimes like the work is all that you can share. Right. And so you just start creating work product. And so I've been writing online for like 10 plus years now, like on and off. And medium like a lot of, to Substack, you went through all well, the different. Oh my gosh, uh, no, no, even before medium, like I'm talking like blog, spot, blogger, like Zanga, like you name it, like I was on it. Um, Tumblr, Word, you know, WordPress, all of it, um, and like a lot of jobs and opportunities, and just even meeting, like getting introductions to certain people. Um, I got through just like work product because I was like 20 and I didn't know anybody, you know, um, or even like 25. And I just see people doing that more and more now because like that tradecraft is also much more um, accessible and democratized. And so, yeah, there's no one path. I think like if I could offer like one tip, it's just to start writing. And so I think like that's a really like generic one, but it's true. Like just yeah. start, just start writing. Sometimes the answer isn't as sexy as you would want it to be. <laughs> but it's kind of straightforward. It is. Yeah. And like, not everyone does it. Right. Um, which is why it's like tried and true. Um, but yeah, even if it's just like tweeting into the void, it works eventually. <laughs> oh, you actually just gave me a useful thing to end on, which is actual ending. How much of tech Twitter is real life? Because <laughs> and here's, and here's, here's why, here's why I'm asking. Right. So everyone knows like the generic term, like Twitter isn't real life. And oftentimes this is applied in like a more political context. But what I'm basically describing is I look, I'm almost 30 and I look at the college dropouts, the Gen Z's and everyone has a decent number of followers for how young it seems as I said, everyone, but it's obviously not everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think the ratio of 
just young people interested in this space to being really on Twitter all the time. It, it seems it seems like the FOMO dynamics. If I if I were in college right now, or if I were just a junior thinking about tech, the FOMO would be just out of control in a way that I don't feel like that would have been back when I was in school. So let's just close there. How much of that dynamic is is a real thing? Um, do you need? 5,000 Twitter followers to be a thing in this space. How, how does this actually work if you're a young person? I don't think you do. I also think Twitter is not the be all end all. And it is certainly not reflection of real life. It is like a piece of like a particular culture, um, right? Where like there are certain voices that are louder than others, right? Um, and so you have to be cognizant of that dynamic, I think. And that's true of like any platform and anywhere that you go for what it's worth, even when you like enter a room, right? And so it's not a prerequisite. I'm a strong believer in that. There are tons and tons of amazingly talented, smart people that there are many, many more of them not on Twitter than they are on Twitter, right? And so you don't have to do it. And if you are, if you feel like you have to, and it's not your, it's not like your inclination or like the thing that you think will set you apart, then you also just don't have to do it, right? There are lots of like lean into the thing that actually, like I'm a big proponent of like lean into your superpower um, versus like try to like get better at like something that like even at your 10 out of 10, like someone will just be like markedly better, right? <laughs> um, like don't be incompetent, hopefully, uh, but like lean into the thing that like if you're in, I don't know, doing like some niche, like synthetic biology, like research, like research, right? Like Twitter prop may not be the place for you. I'm not saying it isn't, um, but, you know, find your people where like your people are, right? And if you're trying to like cross over and meet um, maybe tech Twitter people, like that's a different story. But yeah, I think like to your to your original question of like, if you're feeling overwhelmed, um, it is not a prerequisite. There are many paths to like finding the right people and like finding success. And, you know, if I could plug, like that's partially, I think, again, the mission of On Deck, right? Being able to give you access to like the community of people that will support you, fund you, accelerate your career, your startup, whatever it might be your mission, um, without necessarily having to have some badge that gives you access. I think I'm really glad we could end with some news people could use. Min, thank you so much for joining. Do you have anything you'd like to shout out? You've mentioned some companies, some ideas, but anything. Oh, could you shout out where your writing is so people can learn more and engage? Sure. Um, I'm just at minkim, M-I-N-N-Kim.com. Um, I share most of my writing there. And then you can find me on Twitter where I, where I share all my shower thoughts and early threads um, at Minicat. Great. Min, thank you so much for rejoining us in the debate. Of course. Thanks for joining us in the deep end. If you enjoyed your stay, give us a review on Apple Podcasts and share this episode with your friends and colleagues to help grow the show with us. We've also got show notes and more episodes available at ideas.beyonddeck.com. See you next time. Hold up. 